Hello, and welcome to the Indie Soundbites podcast. Short fantasy fiction from the pages of Indie Bites. This week's story is Ladies of the Abyss by Alex Rollins, read by Matthew Blurton. What follows is an accurate account of my interview with John Taylor on the 5th of October 1951. Well, it is largely accurate. It is somewhat challenging to recollect every word perfectly, but I would say that it is more accurate than it is not, which will be sufficient, as you won't believe it anyway, despite my impeccable credibility. I begin this tale, forgive my fantastical and overly romantic tone, with my arrival on Merrick, a small, harsh and largely forgettable island whose inhabitants number no more than twenty. No car and driver was waiting, of course, so I was forced to walk. As I fully intended to be back at the pier by last ferry to the mainland, my satchel was light. I did not fancy being stranded on this island that did not even have a pub. Imagine a place where you need to cross the water to reach a post office. Madness. The sun was already beginning to dip below the horizon, and the lack of any street lamps made my journey a perilous one. I picked my way unsteadily up the dirt paths and eventually onto a semi-serviceable track that led to what could charitably called a village. It was little more than a cluster of thatched-roofed cottages that seemed to huddle together, despite the expansive flatness that surrounded them. I briefly mused that they cowered together in fear of the island. I do enjoy whimsy sometimes. At this point, my geographical knowledge ran dry, and I was forced to knock on one of the doors gingerly. Light shone beneath the door, and feet shuffled beyond it. But after over a minute of waiting, no one answered. So I moved on. The next door was opened, but only a crack. Yes? Hello? said the occupant. A small woman, I surmised, by the shadow and voice. Good evening, ma'am. I'm looking for the residence of one John Taylor. Could you please direct me? I replied. A curious eyeball appraised me from the small opening. Taylor? Taylor? Oh, I don't know any Taylors. You're quite sure? He is a fisherman, by all accounts. The woman thought a moment. I know him, I... Not many fishermen round here, it's all sheep, you see. I do know a John, though. Follow the track, out of the village, over the crest of the hill. You should see his chimney smoke. It's the only house not in the village. I smiled politely and professed my gratitude. The woman closed the door immediately. I heard a key turn in the lock and then a dead bolt shifting into place. I chose not to dally any further and walked in the direction that she had given me. Luckily there was still enough light for me to see the thin trail of white smoke rising lazily from the chimney and from the crest of the hill I could see the pier just beyond it, lonely without its boat. I walked along a well-trodden path and arrived at the residence of John Taylor. Compared to this house, those in the villages were palaces. 
It was more of a stone shed with a few windows, lit with a weak, flickering flame. I ducked into the low alcove before the front door and gathered myself. I take my work very seriously. And indeed, I am very good at it. I took a deep breath, feeling the cold breeze, wet with the surf, assault my cheeks, and could now hear waves lapping against the pier. Darkness had fully claimed dominion now, and I briefly wondered if my journey back to the ferry would be a safe one. Before I could dwell on the thought, I knocked. Unlike his neighbours, John was not a shy man, and no more than four seconds after I knocked was the door thrown wide open. I was met by a large man, more than a head taller than myself, with weathered skin and an impressive belly that preceded him. He had a stern face and an even sterner nose. His eyes were dark and cold like the waters that he fished. I, he said, it sounded like a demand rather than a query. John Taylor, I ventured. John did not reply. My name is Richards, Arthur Richards. I work for Jenkins and Son. When John still did not speak, I continued. The insurance firm, Mr. Taylor. You submitted a claim some time ago, and I'm here to discuss it with you. What's there to discuss? John demanded in an incredulous tone. Tears lost. Gone to the waves and all the dark things that dwell there. Well, yes, but this case does seem to be a little more complex than all that, doesn't it? John seemed to inflate, and I was briefly concerned that he might attack me. Having fought in the war, I can throw a punch, but I doubt it would have been effective against John's paunch. After a tense moment, the man exhaled. Come in, then. Will you have tea? I ducked into the hovel, while politely declining the offer. I did not wish to linger any longer than necessary. John's home had a bed, a small table with a chair and a leaning wardrobe. There was a small stove in one corner, on top of which sat a kettle. It consisted of one room, and pipe smoke hung heavily in the air. It felt oppressive. I did not like it. John directed me to sit in the chair, and lacking another one, he perched on the edge of the bed. He picked up his pipe and puffed aggressively, causing the embers to flare into life and light his face. I had not noticed the small scars that covered his cheeks and chin before. Some looked relatively fresh. I retrieved the necessary paperwork and set it on the table, carefully shifting John's detritus to one side. The table sat in front of a window looking onto the pier and the dark waters beyond it. The pale light of the moon glinted playfully off the water as it shifted. It was beautiful in its way. Well... John said impatiently. Well, the account that you submitted in your claim is inconsistent. You are an experienced fisherman, and largely attribute the loss of your boat to poor judgment. It can happen to the best of us. Perhaps. But this has now happened to you twice, Mr Taylor. You previously submitted a claim in 1947... Your claim then was almost identical to your most recent one. In the insurance business, this can cause some um, issues. 
What exactly do you want of me, Arthur Richards? I smiled, shifting the papers so that the leather-bound pad sat at the top. I opened it and retrieved a pen from my shirt pocket. I want you to recount the events of that day, Mr. Taylor, the 5th of August this year. Begin at the start of the day and proceed until the incident. Do not omit any information. Please do not have misconceptions, sir. I want to approve this claim. I'm no malicious man. The more information you can give me, the better I can help you. Silence hung between us, and for the second time in under a minute I felt that I might be in danger. John glared at me, his nostrils flared, and the embers in the pipe glowed as he dragged the smoke into his lungs. He sat back, resting his back against the wall. The light of the lantern no longer quite reached him, and only the pipe now illuminated him. He took the stem from his lips and spoke slowly, and calmly. Well, all right then, Mr. Richards, I will recount the entire torrid affair. But I need you to make a pact with me. A pact? Indeed. You have to swear that you will listen from start to finish. You may ask questions, but I will not accept derision. I thought on this. It was a curious thing and gave me the impression that I would not like John's story. It is fair. You have your pact, sir. John turned his gaze to the ceiling and evidently he was pulling his thoughts together in his mind, compiling them into one comprehensive account. When he was ready, he turned his eyes to me again. I hadn't intended to take the boat out that day. It was a poor day for it, and I'd returned with a substantial haul only the day before. There'd be no demand for the fish. I sat at my chair there and I looked upon the waves. I felt a pull. I feel it sometimes, as every man of the sea does. It defies all logic and reasoning, but when I feel that pull, I must get under way. John paused and tapped the tip of his pipe against his forehead. A habit for thinking, I suppose. Tis no surprise to me that I remained on that water for too long. I was line fishing, and I had not had a single bite. Most men would give up and turn for home, but I am a stubborn old goat. So I defied the sea, and kept fishing long into the night. The sun had long since set by the time I felt an almost imperceptible tug on the line. When no fight came, I assumed that some fish had been inquisitive enough to probe the oak, but not foolhardy enough to bite it. In truth, I was enjoying myself. John turned his eyes to the window. Above me, the sky was cloudless. And I could see all the heavens. Sometimes, when the water is calm, you can see the stars above and below you. I once read a book where a man went far from the world in a metal tube. Imagine it was something like that. I pondered on the relevance of John's reverie, but didn't ponder aloud. 
Then I felt the tug again, followed by a more violent attack on the line. As you can imagine, I was not keen on letting my one catch of the day elude me, so I fought it with every ounce of my strength. I was dragged from one side of the boat to the other, and then nearly pulled into the water as the line rubbed against the hull. swam beneath the boat, you see. After what must have been ten full minutes of fighting, it stopped, and all was silent. Then, with a brutality that I have not seen in a fish, the rod was torn from my hands, lost to the water. I liked that rod. Admitting defeat, I decided to head back. Engine groaned and the propeller churned the water, but the boat didn't move. After a few minutes of trying, I stopped for fear of taxing the engine too much. I surmised that I was stuck on something, though I couldn't imagine what in that water, that deep. I walked the perimeter of the boat, using my lantern to check the surface of the water. As I turned from port to starboard, the light of the lantern glinted off something. It must have been 20 feet from the boat. But I could see them as clearly as I see you now, Mr Richards. John let the suspense grow, but I was impatient. What did you see? I asked. Eyes, sir. A pair of eyes that shined in the yellow glow of the lantern. I could see only the eyes, mind you. Some fish? Have you ever seen a fish remain at the surface just to watch a human? Well, I... I muttered quickly, cut off by John. No, sir. It was no fish. John snorted and shook his head. Despite myself, I felt like a fool. Then I could hear something. John tilted his head, and his eyes roamed the rafters, although he could hear the sound still. I thought perhaps... I was being drawn into the man's mind as I could hear it too. John's thumb tapped against the bed frame. It was coming from the owl. Something was tapping against it. It moved from fore to aft, port to starboard, and then it stopped, not two feet from where I was standing. I stared at where the sound had been. All was silent for oh, maybe a minute. Then there was a scraping noise. It chilled my soul, made the juices in my stomach vibrate. It started low, but rose up the side of the boat till it reached the handrail. Something dark tentatively peeked over the top. Five oily fingers, black fingers, wrapped round the handrail. Fingers? I asked dubiously. Fingers. It was an and, similar in shape to that of a woman's, but black as the night sky with claws like that of the hawk. I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. I could only stare dumbly as it hauled itself over into the boat. John was silent, and I thought that the lantern's oil might be running low as the room seemed to grow dark, though perhaps my memory is faulty. As what hauled itself into the boat? I asked. My voice was low and quiet. It didn't even really sound like mine. We've given him many names, John replied, his voice quiet to match my own. 
and I imagine those that came to this island before us gave them many more, as I assure you they have always been here. Ladies of the Abyss is one of their more romantic titles. I didn't write this down. I realised that we were spiralling into insanity. I wanted to call John a liar and leave, refusing his claim, but something compelled me to stay and to hear the rest of this fisherman's tale. Go on, I said with some trepidation. She was beautiful, as they always are to begin. She had pitch black hair that surrounded her like a blanket and the face of a goddess. Pale, flawless skin, high cheekbones and a gentle jaw. The only inhuman thing about her face was her entirely black eyes. Her hair covered everything else, but her tail. Tail? I blurted out. Oh, yeah. A tail to replace legs, long, scaled, and redder than a salmon with a beautiful fin that ended in sharp points, like a shark. Mr. Taylor, am I right to believe that you are saying that a mermaid was aboard your boat that night? I remind you of our pact, Mr. Richards, John replied tartly. Well, I, I remember, but... I will continue, John said, clearing his throat again. This was not the first time I've encountered one of the ladies, of course. Many on this island know them. Few would tell of it. She dragged herself across the deck, her talons biting deep into the wood. I fell on my backside as she approached, overcome with fear. I always am, no matter how many times I see one. She seemed to ignore me. Passing by and approaching the wheel, she pulled herself up, but the wheel snapped in her monstrous grip. She looked at the fragments, curiously, as though they were alien to her. More scraping came from the owl and another hand gripped the railing. The newcomer was almost identical to the first, though her hair was a deep, fiery red. As she fell into the boat, the first noticed and turned to face her. Within an instant, their faces changed from beautiful to bestial. All pretenses evaporated. Their bottom jaws seemed to unhinge, and their teeth became daggers. Blood-red fins protruded from their tails, which they shook violently. I tried to make myself small. I tell you, Mr. Richards, I feared no man or beast, but I feared them. I feared them. I am a logical, God-fearing man, but at that moment I thought perhaps I felt some of John's fear. I did not want to hear more about these unnatural creatures, but I had made my pact with John, and so he continued. They flew at each other. Clashing in midair, their talons shredded each other's skin, and they sank their fangs into any exposed flesh. I fought in the war, Mr. Richards, and I imagine that you did too. We have seen all the horrors that man can inflict on his fellow, so imagine what a monster can do to its neighbour. By the time the melee was over, blood as red as my own washed over the deck. The red-haired lady was cut to ribbons. The victor licked her claws and became her former beautiful self. I looked around myself for a weapon. I found my filleting knife, which had been thrown from its place. I wrapped 
trembling fingers around the handle and pulled it towards me. The sound of the steel scratching the wood finally drew her attention to me, her eyes devoid of feeling, but in my mind at least, full of cruel intelligence, regarded me coldly. I was immediately aware of the vast brooding ocean beyond the window before me, and for a brief moment my eyes searched it. Perhaps I was looking for the eyes of a gorgeous yet vicious creature. I had been dragged into John's hysteria and would find it difficult to escape. I raised that knife, but as I did it crossed the deck with one strike sent that blade careening into the black waters. I was defenceless. Her peaceful face was inches from my own. She raised hand to my face, slowly raked my cheeks with her claws. I didn't even feel the pain. I was so afraid. With both hands she investigated my face, drawing blood wherever she touched. She opened my mouth, peered inside, tapping a talon against each tooth in turn, like she was counting them. And she smiled. I shivered, but then was immediately ashamed. Yeah, she smiled. I could say that it was an evil smile, but it wasn't. I felt that it was benevolent and kind, though I could not support that feeling with any evidence. Regardless, it brought me instant comfort, and with my fear vanished, the blood that marred her perfect face no longer disgusted me. Her tail became majestic, and I thought that even her claws were magnificent. I do not know if this sudden change in feeling towards the thing was natural or some trickery on her part, but in that moment I did not care. She backed away from me, and I followed her. As I couldn't bear to be far from her, she crawled over the side of the boat and into the water. I rushed to the railing and stared longingly into the blackness. Her face broke the surface, a pale moon against the void. Her smile still transfixed me. Without a second thought, I fell into her waiting arms. What? I blurted out, dumbfounded. You threw yourself into the water? I did, yes. At the time, I didn't think I had any other choice. The lady's smile compelled me. I left the boat and the gore behind me and followed her into the depth. Yet you sit here now. I awoke on my pier at dawn. Sounds like it could have been a dream, I interrupted. Nearly a week later, John finished. I never saw my boat again. We sat in silence. I take it that I have not convinced you, Mr. Richards. It is a fantastic tale, but I believe that is all that it is. John stood so suddenly that I instinctively raised my hands in defence. Instead of attacking me, though, John began unbuttoning his shirt. Uh, I'm uh, not sure, I began, but was silenced with a look. As John shed his shirt... The waning light of the lantern caught the ragged edges of scars that seemed to cover every inch of his chest, stomach and back, a souvenir from the ladies' investigations. I have to admit that I was both fascinated and disgusted when faced with the multitude of scars, 
and I could not help but imagine being trapped in the freezing abyss with claws scraping my skin. I did not care for this. I felt fear, and I hated it. I promptly cleared my papers and journal back into my satchel. "'You think I am a fool, really?' I said. I could hear the bitterness in my own voice. "'I think you are a mainlander with no imagination,' John replied, sounding more weary than angry. "'Ladies are only the least of the terrors that sleep beneath those waves, Mr. Richards.' I stood and threw the satchel over my shoulder. "'Mr. Taylor,' I said, with some small amount of venom, but not much confidence, "'I believe you to be a liar.' Based on this false portrayal of your boat's disappearance and suspect claim, I must inform you that your claim is rejected on behalf of Jenkins and Sons Insurance. You will receive a formal rejection by post within a fortnight. I turned from John and stormed out of the hovel without another look at the scarred storyteller. As the fresh, wet air hit my face, I stopped and breathed hard. I was angry angry at John for thinking that I would believe his lies, and angry at myself because, in some small way, I did. A sea breeze chilled me, and it was beginning to drizzle. Above, the stars mocked me. I marched up the hill, knowing the last ferry would soon leave without me, abandoning me on this island with secretive villages, one madman, and possibly a host of mermaids. As I crested the hill, I could not resist a glance back at John's hovel. I was shocked by what I saw. The home was now in darkness, the lantern instead being on the pier alongside John. I wish that I could tell you with any degree of certainty that the next thing that I saw was a figment of my imagination tortured by John's unbelievable claims, but I cannot. Something broke the surface of the water. The lantern died. I turned away and ran until my legs hurt. I have tried to forget John's tale and what I saw, but I can't. I am sure that anyone reading this will call it an obsession, but tomorrow I return to Merrick to demand an answer to one fundamental question. Is John Taylor a liar? Thank you for listening to Ladies of the Abyss by Alex Rollings, read by Matthew Blurton. Alex Rollings is a self-published author of Weird and Ridiculous Tales, based in Glasgow, Scotland, who teaches through the day and writes through the night. If you enjoyed this short story, then you might enjoy Adventuring with Extreme Prejudice, which follows Percy, a lad destined for a tedious future of words and numbers, as he apprentices himself to Mark, a man hunting a murky kind of glory. Percy's decision will take him to the deepest, darkest places and put his world's future squarely on his somewhat scrawny shoulders. And before the end, Percy will learn that being a hero is a dirty job. If you'd like to contribute to Indie Bites, get in touch at silversonbooks.com or find us on Twitter at Indie underscore Bites.